Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 29 in our series for 2016. And today's date is Friday the 19th of August. And Leon, we're talking to Ben Fisterer, the uh, country manager of Squared. That's right. Uh, ben Fisterer is uh, the country manager, Australian country manager of Square. He's going to be talking to us about how Square empowers small business, uh, providing them every Everything from streamlining processes to mobility and technology. It's going to be really interesting. Yeah, Squared's quite a thing. It took off a little chip in the US and gone from strength to strength. And it's worth actually checking it out to see what Square has to offer. And after that, we're going to have an interview with uh, RMIT economist Sinclair Davidson. And uh, he's going to be talking about? All about Malcolm Turnbull's offer to put a, a floor under the GST so that uh, West Australia can up its share of the payment. Sinclair does not think that's a feasible proposition, and he says it's going to die very quickly. bit like wrestling with the barbed wire man GST, isn't it? It was set up by John Howard to exactly stay the same. And almost impossible to change. That's right. Okay, and now let's listen to Ben Fisherer. Ben Feisler, tell us about Square. Uh, sure, Square uh, has been around for about seven years and started in the uh, in the US, so in San Francisco, uh, and recently um, recently launched in Australia. So uh, effectively, Square has a, a has a, a wide variety of products, but we're both most well known for our Square Reader, which is a really really small format device that plugs into any tablet or mobile phone uh, and then turns those systems into a fully fledged point of sale and also allows you to take credit and debit card payments. So really tight targeted at the small business and aim to make it really simple for them to start accepting card payments. And so what are some of the products you have? Sure. So in Australia, we've got um, Square Square Register, which is our free point of sale product. So effectively, that runs on a tablet or could be on a phone, but um, mainly on a tablet. And that effectively replaces what you'd have as a cash register. But and on the back of that, it has fully fledged analytics, a really strong data uh, side of things. So you can track your sales, you can look at your inventory, you look at trends and then optimize your business. And we've got Square Reader, which was launched about two months ago, and that's the small device that you can accept card payments. We've also got Square invoices. So now rather than writing up manual invoices and sending them out to your customers and then chasing them for payment, which can be a hard and difficult process, you can now send them electronically. They can conveniently pay, uh, and then you can get paid into your account in real time. So you you have to set up or you've got a payments gateway and you work for the, the business with the customer, Correct. you're the intermediary. Correct. So Square Square effectively plugs into into the payment network, um, so it can um, route money from a card into a merchant account, uh, and businesses sign up to sign up with us and use our software to simply accept card payments or to run their point of sale. Do you have to get um, authorization from, say, Mastercard, Visa, and and the rest of them, um, or does it work on any credit card? It works on any credit card and relatively standard the way the transaction's authorised. So that's authorised by the card issuing bank. I'd, I'd imagine the, the whole issue point of sale and inventory management would really be terrific for small businesses, wouldn't it? Yeah, it is. Historically, powerful point of sale and analytics has been the privy of big businesses and costs a lot of money and of, uh, often has a team of analysts in the back background crunching the numbers. But now with a, a simple tool like Square Register, uh, any small business can get it. And as I said, it's free. Uh, so they can start using it, you know, today and start watching their sales and, and crunching their numbers and, and looking to optimize their business in a variety of ways. So yeah, I think we're only just starting to see the onset in Australia. 
there. Small businesses who like technology and quite tech savvy are starting to realise the power they can introduce into their business. One, one of the issues of uh, small businesses and data is uh, how the hell do we bring on data scientists to uh, analyse this data? What would you say to that with, with Square? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely one of the challenges if you're trying to run a big business. We have some of the best data scientists and analysts in the world. Uh, so we've um, got them to create reports and templates and tools that small businesses can use. So they don't have to hire people to do their number crunching. It's all ready to go and really simple to understand and to digest uh, formats. Square was started up by Jack Dorsey, wasn't it? Correct. From Twitter. Yes, also founded Twitter. So how closely do you work with San Francisco? Yeah, really closely. They have a, a great team over there that have been around for a number of years and being one of the most recent markets, we're just getting started and growing our team. Uh, so most of the product development is still done in San Francisco, but then we have a local team that works with them to localize it and make sure it's right for Australian small businesses and then to help to, to deploy it. And then we have a team here to also work on the support side of things to make sure that if any businesses have any questions, they can ring up the a support line at any time. But yeah, we work really, really closely with San Francisco. So in, in effect, you're kind of leapfrogging the card reader that would be in a shop and that I think owned by the bank or a friend of the bank <laughs> but you, you're replicating that many times on aren't you so that almost anybody can have one what are the advantages for a small business of that system yeah I think the the last point you made is probably the most critical one there where uh, historically we're really focused on helping small businesses um, in the past if you're a small business and you go to uh, an incumbent provider uh, you often get somewhat interrogated to make sure you know how long you've been around show us your books um, what's your cash flow and then probably best case you can expect is to get rather high fees you can get locking contracts hidden charges so on so on really hard to understand how much you're actually paying uh, and we, we aim to simplify that whole process to make sure that they can walk into a retailer or go to a website, uh, pick up one of our square readers for $19 and then 1.9% for any transaction. So don't worry about whether it's a Platinum or an Amex, a MasterCard, no matter what it is, it's 1.9%. So it really simplifies that. And again, no no contract. They can they can come and go as they please. If you're a, a seasonal or a cyclical business like a, a market or an events management business, you can use this when you when you have product or, or when you have jobs. And, and when you don't, you don't get charged for anything. So no m- m- monthly rental fees, uh, really convenient. So we're, yeah, we're definitely aiming at small business. But that said, we're finding a lot of uh, medium businesses liking our product as well, where it can complement some of their existing products. Uh, for example, a pop-up store. So it might be a restaurant who has a fixed location and then they try to do a pop-up store, but they don't have to set up a you know, really complicated um, card acceptance um, systems. They just have to use a square reader in their way. And 1.9% would be less than Amex charges anyway, wouldn't it? Uh, it's a very, very competitive rate. There's no doubt. Uh, and again, we kind of look out for that small business to make sure that we'll have the discussions with the networks to make sure that they get a fair and reasonable price. So basically, when you set up here, your market, your target market was small business, wasn't it? It was, it was. Uh, so we tried to take, I guess, Square in the US and back to our foundations about where we started. And it was all about small business and making sure we represent them and we look after their interests and grow from there. But we're finding a good mix of business sizes coming through. But you know, overwhelmingly, it's small, micro, mobile, those types of businesses that are loving our products. PayPass is very popular in Australia, much less so in the US. Does Square have that kind of technology in its sites? Well, can we expect not a swipe, but 
to tap? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, contactless technology or PayWave or PayPass is, you know, incredibly important part of, of our product roadmap. Uh, in the US, we recently launched um, our Apple Pay Square Reader, which can also accept contactless cards. Uh, and we're looking to that future as well. We actually were faced with a, a bit of a dilemma when we started here where we could have gone live with a product like that, but we just had this overwhelming demand from small businesses saying, I love these new products. I love the future products, but how about that Square Reader that, you know, the US has had for a number of years? Why can't we get that first? So we decided to get that out there in the market and just start testing it and trialing it and, and seeing how small businesses like it. And then we have a full uh, product roadmap we, we aim to bring out, um, of which contactless technology is key. Tell me, is there anything more distinctive about the Australian small business scene compared to the American small business scene? Are they quite similar? I think the Australian small business scene, though, is, is um, and this is no discredit to the US market, uh, but they're really tech savvy. So they do have a high demand on what technology can do for their business. I mean, generally, Australians like technology and are very first movers, are often first movers. So you see that in the business community as well. In terms of whether they're different, probably not too different. I think what you find is that small business owners and founders have very much common traits. They're really obviously entrepreneurial. They're passionate about what their craft is. So they come that comes through in every market. And we're seeing that as in Australia, where, in Australia, where we're working with a really um, great mix of different businesses. Basically, they're the same, but they're more tech savvy here. Yeah, um, that's obviously just from my standpoint. I haven't got too many data points I can fall back on. But yeah, we often see that. We see them um, really looking for that edge. Uh, the Australian, every industry in Australia is quite competitive. Um, so they're looking for that edge to make sure that they're optimizing their business at all times. So products like this really helped them out. So where do you see the future of this? I mean, the first part of their future is making sure that we, we get the first few products right. And that's something we're really passionate about and not rushing out products. Uh, so we're, we're really excited and humbled to see the uptake so far. And as if you look in the US, we've got a broad range from payroll management to capital services. Uh, and we aim to bring all those products out to Australia in, in a logical sequence. So we'll keep doing that. But our commitment to small businesses is we'll also uh, keep an eye on emerging technology. So, you know, the newest thing, whether it's Apple Pay or the next product coming out after that, we'll make sure that we build products to make sure small businesses don't have to worry about that side of it. And they're always covered no matter what way they want to get paid. Ben Foster, thank you very much for your time. Pleasure. Thank you. Well, Squared's an interesting thing. It's just really interesting innovation on mobile technology. What it can do for businesses is quite interesting. Yeah, it just brings a cash register right into your hand. Exactly. Okay, now Sinclair and the GST. Sinclair Davidson, Malcolm Turnbull has come up with a radical proposal to put a floor under the GST to prop up WA's GST share. And uh, this is in the lead up, of course, to the WA state election in March. Uh, What's your view about this? I suspect this is going to be a short-lived proposal, um, like the other GST proposals that have been floated since uh, Mr. Turnbull became Prime Minister. If you recall, there was idea of a 15% GST, there was talk about increasing the base of the GST, and now there's uh, talk of changing the distribution of the GST. Now, all of these things, when John Howard announced the GST in 1998, were kind of locked into place. And I think people haven't quite realised how firmly they were locked into place um, at the time. But as these proposals to change the GST come about, we're actually realizing that uh, when John Howard said it would never, ever change, um, he kind of meant it would never, ever change. And he put the mechanisms in place to keep it at the the rates, the distribution and the base unchanged. Because basically to change it would require the agreement of all the other state governments. Yes, that is the case. Now, to, to, to be entirely technical, the Commonwealth can change 
all of the, the, the details of the GST all by itself, but John Howard sort of cemented in people's minds that this was a, a an agreement between the Commonwealth and the states. And so it is so widely believed that it is, a, it is such an agreement that I don't believe, it's a terrible term, I don't believe that any government would have the social license to actually unilaterally change it. So it is locked in place. It will require the agreement of the states just for political legitimacy for any change to occur. And of course, that's never going to happen. But uh, the Treasurer Scott Morrison was on uh, radio yesterday saying that uh, it's just a matter of time till it happens. Well, I suppose to the extent that anything can happen, um, I suppose that's true. But to the extent that um, what is going to happen and what can happen is often very different, I suspect Mr. Morrison is going to be bitterly disappointed if he thinks that the GST is going to change anytime soon because... um, uh, they already got very badly burnt before the last election trying to talk about changing the GST. And I think they'll get even more badly burnt changing the distribution of, of, of the GST. I mean, but, but the issue is that uh, the Commonwealth Grants Commission has a very complex, convoluted formula that takes its time changing anything. The issue is that WA had enormous royalties from uh, the mining boom and uh, so money was going to the other states but uh, the mining boom has dried up and uh, WA now gets only 30, 30 cents. In the well, dollar. There, there are a whole bunch of things in there that we need to unpack. First of all, we need to understand there are swings and roundabouts. In the 116 years of federation, I think WA has been a net recipient of uh, equalization for about 100 of those 116 years. So um, they've only recently become a net contributor to the Commonwealth. Uh, before that, it's always been New South Wales and Victoria that have been net contributors. So there's swings and roundabouts there. The other thing to understand about the GST and the horizontal equalization in our federation is that it is a top-up payment. Commonwealth Grants Commission work out the basic standard that public services should be provided to any state or territory and then works out what you need to be topped up from your own resources. WA is actually a rich resource state and it needs less to be topped up to a minimum standard than do other states and territories of Australia. So that's why they are getting less at the moment. They've got their own sources where they can provide those public services to to Australians. Now, that is how the system operates. That is how the system is designed to operate. We're not looking here at some unintended consequence. We're not looking here at a flaw. We're not looking here at some or other stuff up. We're looking at the system operating as it's intended to operate, as it's designed to operate, how it's expected to operate. Um, where I do understand the Western Australians are a bit annoyed is that the top-up payments that they've been receiving has been very volatile. Now, in some years, they've been promised, say, 40 cents and only got 30 cents for example. So that, of course, makes it harder for them to plan. But the fact of the matter is is that WA can afford to provide public services to its citizens at a standard that's equivalent to all the other states. And uh, that is how our horizontal fiscal, uh, fiscal equity system works. Now, if they want to change that, that's a separate argument. Um, the fact of the matter is uh, Tasmania, Western, uh, South Australia, the Northern Territory do need more money to top up. Now, one of the perverse consequences of the system is that it provides an incentive for states to become mendicant. It actually penalizes states that, ref- that that actually undertake efficiency-enhancing reforms. Now, these are arguments to be made for changing the formula. These are arguments to be made for 
putting different incentive structures in place. But I think when John Howard said it would be distributed by the Commonwealth Grants Commission, everybody agreed. So this is a system working as designed, as planned, as expected. Um, the, The Western Australians don't like the outcome. Okay, that's fine. They want to change it. Yeah, that's fine. But I think they've got to have a better argument than just jumping up and down and saying it's unfair. But uh, the the issue is the West Australian uh, government is deeply in the red. It is, it is. And of course, the, the other thing is, well, um, they need to tighten their belts, surely. Um, they've spent a lot of money where they shouldn't have spent money. They redistributed a lot of their royalties back to rural areas because they had an agreement with the National Party. That's inefficient spending. Um, at the same time, of course, if they uh, wanted to grow their economy more, they would uh, change their shopping hours, all sorts of things like that. So there's a lot of domestic reforms that can be done within the WA economy without them sort of taking out the begging bowl and running to Canberra. So uh, WA actually needs to sort of attend to its budget first before crying yes. poor and getting the GST changed. Absolutely. I mean, to, to a large extent, of course, uh, WA is a very wealthy economy. Um, now, yes, it's come off. There's a business cycle. This operates. They should have thought about this and planned ahead, the same as everybody else. I mean, uh, if, if anybody is upset about the GST distribution, it should be the citizens of New South Wales and Victoria. Uh, we've been paying in ever since it started, and um, we've been net contributors to the Commonwealth for 116 years of 116 years. So the the, 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 the WA people, yes, I understand they're, they're temporarily upset. Other states have been permanently upset. It's, it's, there are swings and roundabouts and the system operates as designed. The GST seems to be one of these perennial issues that always keeps coming up. And there are many, always been talk of changing it. It all, never happens. Uh, we saw it last year with talk of uh, the 15%. Yes. We, we saw it, we've seen it now, and yet it's not going to happen. Is there any way the GST can be changed. I would have thought to change the GST, there would have to be an overwhelming consensus that this was a good idea. And we simply don't have that overwhelming consensus. And to the extent that the GST has got a lot of uh, political support, a lot of ingrained support, and of course, changing the GST becomes a zero-sum game, it's going to be very hard to get agreement on changing the figure. And I think all this talk about changing the GST and and doing other silly things like rating superannuation, negative gearing and what have you, these are all lazy politics. And it's lazy fiscal politics. And our our friends in Canberra need to think very long and hard about what we're spending money on, why we are spending that money, and and looking more towards spending reforms and growing the economy than growing the tax take or even just redistributing the existing tax take. I think they need to think more carefully. They need to do the harder work. And all this talk about GST is actually just being lazy. Right. I mean, it's it's very much in keeping with what Peter Costello was saying to Four Corners last yes, week. Yes, yes. Uh, you actually have to get spending below 25%. Yes, yes. The the, the, the long-term of, um, average um, spending is above our, our average over the last 40 years. And even Lord Keynes suggested that uh, once you've got spending above 25%, uh, you've got an economy in trouble. And uh, we've, we've known that since the 1930s when Lord Keynes made that statement. So it's, it's actually do some hard yards, do some creative thinking make some tough decisions and don't sort of distract with the, the, these proposals that generate a lot of heat 
but actually zero light in the end. Right. And uh, so in terms of super, do you see any chance of uh, these changes getting through, these lifetime events? <laughs> I actually suspect what's going to happen is that uh, uh, the, the government and the Labour Party might come to some rather agreement. And I suspect that there will be several uh, coalition defectors that will be made up with, with Labour voters uh, or, or Labour MPs voting for the proposal, which is, is going to be very embarrassing for the Prime Minister. So I, I would have thought that there too he would think very carefully before proceeding with this. Again, it's it's, it's laziness. Um, it also undermines the kind of credibility that you need to do to have a policy such as superannuation operate successfully and ha- let people have confidence in it. I, I, I think changing the rules continually and, and backdating them back to 2007, effectively re, um, unwinding the Costello reforms of 2006, um, which of course Mr. Costello has come out and criticised them too, which I quite rightly I think in, in, in that particular case. I, I do think that they, they need to stay away from superannuation, they need to stay away from the GST and just focus on spending more than taxing. Sinclair Davidson, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. So how do you read that, Leon? It's, I mean, it was a bit of fun, the oh, whole thing. I think, I think look... I think I think the issue is John Howard had set it up so that all the states had to agree to any change, and none of the states are going to agree to this proposition. Except apart from WA. Apart from WA. So it's not going to get up. Now, I noticed that Malcolm Turnbull is now saying it'll be put to COAG and it mightn't come in into place until 2019. But based on what Sinclair's saying, I would say never. Okay, and now the news. Well, Gary, uh, interestingly enough, the Federal Reserve is actually raising expectations for an interest rate rise this year, even as early as next month after two policymakers on Tuesday said the economic stars now appear to be aligning despite weak US economic growth in the first half of 2016. And New York Fed President William Dudley says it's possible to raise rates at the September 2021 policy meeting, while Dennis Lockhart of the Atlanta Fed said a hike next month is in play. And the comments which prompted investors to boost bets on a rate hike come days before the Fed's annual meeting in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. So everyone will be watching that time very closely. And we'll be watching the uh, value of the Australian dollar. Is it going to go up or down? During that period, indeed, indeed. Now, after weeks of speculations of a ratings cut, ratings agency Moody's has reaffirmed Australia's prized AAA credit rating, despite warnings about Australia's growing government and household debt and vulnerability to a housing downturn. Moody's said Australia's economy is resilient. Moody's said that even if Australia's housing Housing prices collapse. Uh, Australian banks are in such a strong financial position that it won't lead to a banking crisis. And they say that despite our growing amount of debt, it's still less than other places. Now, Australian wages growth remains stuck at a record low level, ensuring inflation will remain subdued, putting pressure on the RBA to keep... cutting interest rates. Australian Bureau of Statistics data shows that wages grew just 0.5%, staying at the same level as the March quarter, and wages grew just 2.1% over the financial year. And of course, wages growth has been held down by underemployment, casualisation and slowing jobs growth. That actually indicates that the economy is stagnating. Yep, it is indeed, and it's likely to get worse because uh, Holden will close, South Australia become a rust bucket. We've we got real problems. We've got enormous problems. Now, Malcolm Turnbull plans to introduce 
introduce early in the new parliament an omnibus bill that pulls together all the coalition savings measures that Labor said it would support during the election campaign, and that will help the government reduce the budget deficit by billions of dollars. But I reckon Labor will be hanging out for, to put in some of their own bits. I think they will. I, you know, Bill Shorten's going to play hardball. He's still trying to be Prime Minister. Now, two coalition MPs have proposed the government set up a special banking tribunal for victims of so-called banking bank bastardry. And Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce says he's open to the idea put forward by Queensland Liberal Warren Ench and National Senator John Wacker-Williams. And over the weekend, the manager of the opposition business in the Senate, Sam Dustiari, said Labor could try to get the support of both Houses of Parliament to set up a Royal Commission if the government refuses. But I'd say a tribunal might actually take the steam out of the push for a Royal Commission. Senator Williams was actually a farmer in another life, and he had taken out a massive loan for the Commonwealth Bank. Interest rates were up around 25%, and he had a huge fight with them. So he knows all about bank bastardry. But uh, his view is a, a tribunal would actually have all the teeth and the power to call witnesses and put in recommendations. Yeah, and we'll put the bank, uh, the bank senior executives on this, really on the spot. That's right. Now, another interesting point is the Foreign Investment Review Board explained its security concerns about the 99-year sale of the Ausgrid power network to Chinese interests. And FIRB Chairman Brian Wilson said the seven-member board had advised Treasurer Scott Morrison last week to block the sale of Ausgrid, which supplies electricity to more than 1.6 million homes and businesses in New South Wales. And that followed advice from Treasury, the Defence Department, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, the Australian Security Intelligence Organisation. Now, Wilson wouldn't detail what those security concerns were, but the big concerns are about a foreign owner closing or damaging the network in a crisis or using Osgrid's power lines for espionage purposes. And the Chinese embassy subsequently put out a warning that Australia's rejection of the bids showed what China called clear protectionist tendencies and would have, quote, a serious impact on the enthusiasm of Chinese investors. Which might well be welcomed in Australia right at this red hot. Right, OK, okay. Okay. But the problem is China likes to spy it, and it spies all the time anyway, and uh, they could use the Osgrid fibre connections. Yeah. Now, as we discussed with Sinclair, Malcolm Turnbull has picked another GST fight with premiers, promising West Australia he would fix the formula so that each state was guaranteed a minimum share of the biggest source of tax revenue. And the Prime Minister's commitment made at the WA Liberal Party State Conference on the weekend was intended to assuage concerns that the state was not getting its fair share of the GST. But the the proposal immediately put him at loggerheads with the other states. Now, Western Australia's low share of the annual GST distribution has been a political hot point. WA receives only 30% of the funds it would get if GST was distributed on a per capita basis. And because the state has such a rich flow of resource royalties, the Commonwealth Grants Commission had distributed 70% of WA's GST share to weaker states. Now, the GST distribution aims to ensure all states and territories provide citizens with services of equal quality. But the Grants Commission formula is slow to adjust changes, and with mineral prices crashing, the shortfall left WA's budget deep in deficit. And Turnbull's problems was made in the lead-up, of course, to the WA state election in March, which will be a tough fight for the Barnett government. Turnbull has flagged since it will be discussed at COAG, which technically means it won't come into place until 2019 at the earliest. So things are going to be a bit tough out in the West? I think so. Interesting analysis from the ANZ found that the housing sector, which has held up the economy in the wake of the slowdown in the mining investment over the past two years, Years, is set to run out of steam. ANZ said the sector is now nearing what it calls a broad peak. It forecasts national annual price slowing from a peak last September of 12.8% and the current 8.1% pace to 6.4% and one. 
2016 and 17, respectively. ANZ says the crackdowns on foreign buyers were tighter lending criteria, the risk of oversupply of apartments in Melbourne and Brisbane, and tighter rules for investor borrowings will drive the slowdown, and that will place downward pressure on prices. And that's going to lead to some of the uh, braver people being underwater on their mortgages. That's That's right. Now, Gary, with a profit season entering its biggest week, the company reports are coming out, and uh, let's take a look at them all so far. BHP Billiton posted a statutory net full-year loss of US $6.385 billion. That's um, $8.3 billion Aussie. Significant one-off write-downs and a 31% dive in revenue due to plunging commodity prices damaged the bottom line. This was the first annual loss since BHP and Billiton merged 15 years ago. Underlying profit was $1.2 billion in the year ended. That's down 81% from $6.4 billion a year before. And it's the company's first annual loss since BHP Billiton merged 15 years ago. The National Australia Bank's June quarter cash profit for continuing operations, which is a key figure tracked by the banking industry, fell 3% to $1.6 billion. Statutory profit was $1.6 billion, and the slippage was due to pressure on the bank's net interest margin, higher funding costs, and a higher charge for bat debts in the mining and agricultural sectors. Australia's biggest insurer, QBE, posted a net profit of US $265 million for the half year through to June. That's down 46%. Blood products company, CSL, posted an 18% lower net profit of $1.24 billion US. It's $1.6 billion Aussie for the year to June 30. Stockland's under, underlying profit rose 8.5% from $608 million to $660 million in the year ended June 30. Villa World's full year net profit after tax rose 31.5% to 33.713 million. Primary healthcare's net profit after tax slumped. 41.3% to 74.9 million. James Packer's Crown Resorts full year underlying net profit fell 22% to 400.9 million from a year ago. Sonic Healthcare's net profit rose 30% to 451 million in the year end of June 30. Dexas Property Group virtually doubled its full year profit from 618.7 million to 1.3 billion on the back of property revaluations. Fletcher Building reported a 71% rise in after tax profit to New Zealand. 462 million. That's uh, Aussie 435.8 million. Domino's Pizza Enterprises net profit has skyrocketed 28.7% to 82.4 million. Shopping centre owners SCA Property Group has reported 184.7 million net annual profit. Government owned telecommunications company MBNCO has doubled its revenue to $421 million. Challenger's full year profit soared nearly 10% to $327.7 million on the back of a record $3.4 billion in annuity sales. Mervac reported total profit of $1.033 billion. That's up 69% on the year before, which is pretty good. Ports and rail operator Asiano posted a net profit of $272 million for the year to June. That's down 24%. G8 Education's interim profit fell 12% to $28.24 million. OTOC posted a profit for the year into June uh, 30 at $19.7 million. Australia's biggest funeral homes and crematorium operator, InvoCare, reported a 51% rise in net profit after tax at $27.8 million for the six months into June uh, 2016, which is a good sign. People are still dying. Now, Australia's largest rail freight operator, Horizon's full-year profit, nosedived. 88% to $72 million for the year to June, down sharply from $604 million a year before. A write-off in its investment in Aquila, tough market conditions, and a 9% fall in revenue to $3.458 billion did the damage to its bottom line. Profit on an underlying basis was down 16% to $510 million. Condoms and gloves manufacturer Ansel's profit fell 
5% to 159.1 million for the 12 months through to June, with revenue dropping 4.4% to 1.57 billion. In the wake of the demise of Dick Smith chain, JB Hi-Fi's net profit rose 11.5%, 152.2 million in 2016. Australia's largest gold miner, Newcrest, reported 12% fall in net profit to uh, 332 million. Property group GPT lifted its net profit after tax uh, 39% to 586.4 million. Packaging company Aurora posted a 23.8% jump in net profit to 162.7 million. Shopping mall owner Vicinity Centres, which runs shopping centres like Chatswood Chase in Sydney's North Shore and Chatston in Melbourne, reported a 2016 statutory net profit of 960.9 million, and its underlying earnings are up 9.5% to 757.5 million. Retirement village operator Avio doubled its net profit to 116 million. And finally, serviced and virtual office provider Servcore posted a 19 percent rise in full year profit to 48.8 million and that's it for this week yeah mixed bag of profit and loss isn't that's it? that's right very mixed bag and uh we'll be back next week bring you all the news in talking business and next week we're going to have a chat with uh james deverell uh, from csro and csro is uh setting up a division to advise businesses yes they are and they're getting more people back into uh, climate science that's right, that's right. So that'll be fascinating. We're going to be talking to James Deverell next week. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZ or on Facebook. Stay safe and we look forward to talking to you next week.